0: Welcome to Immersed in Theology. This is the podcast where graduate students talk theology, church, and life. Please enjoy the conversation.
1: All right, welcome to uh, our podcast, uh, looking at why the Bible is true. This is for our Revelation MLO. And uh, my name is Zach. I'm joined by Nate. Hey, hey. And Andrew. Hello. Awesome. So we're gonna take some time and talk about the Bible um, and why this is actually true. So uh we have some questions or some objective objections that we're gonna talk about. But um Nate, do you wanna take us through our first kind of section here? Yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah, before we just kinda jump into objections and stuff, uh I thought it'd be interesting for us to just take a minute and uh, think about what our interactions been like with the Bible uh, personally. And so I don't mean like right now as we're like studying it and things like that, although that can come in, but more around the question of like, what was your relationship with the Bible? Like as you grew up or uh, before you met Jesus or whatever it is, I think we all kind of came into this in different ways in different spaces. So whether or not we grew up hearing Bible stories uh, because they were taught in the home or Sunday school, or we heard them and it was like, Oh, that's a joke. So I'm curious. I just kind of want to throw that question out, and then we just kind of go on out for a minute.
0: Yeah, that's good, Nate. Um, I'll start. I I grew up in the church, so I heard the Bible throughout Sunday school in my home, and I have a Bible that my grandparents used, and I still have it in my on my bookshelf. So it's very much a part of our family history is Christianity. So. For me, it became a thing. The Word of God became this redundant document, I guess you could say like i I didn't turn to it and i because I heard it so many times mm. and it fueled a lot of when you see the animated movie movies like Joseph and uh the comedy on on Noah's Ark and seeing that kind of stuff growing up, it almost made the Bible seem not not fake or not that it wasn't real. It just didn't have impact. It didn't carry weight in my life. And so I began to really grow in appreciation for the word of God when I went to YWAM in grade 10. And we had dedicated time to read the Bible. And it was there that I really discovered that the Bible has Serious impact that it is active and living because I could feel the conviction that it had in my heart in my life. Yeah. And so that was kind of my experience. That's when I really began to dive into the Word for the first time. Was in about grade ten? That's
2: cool. Yeah, that's
0: neat. Zach, how are you, man? Um. Yeah. Well, I
1: didn't really think about the Bible much growing up. Um, didn't really know anything about. It. I think my first like interaction with anything i was probably like 12 and my mom signed me up for like um a vbs essentially like a vacation bible school but um maybe maybe it was over spring break and um i didn't know we just like did crafts and then at the end they gave me a cassette tape and it said like jesus on it or something 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 and it just had the word jesus i just remember that yeah and then i just like gave it to my mom like you know when you give all your parents like all the crafts all the whatever like hey mom here's all the stuff like they gave me hold it because I'm gonna go play or something and she looked at it and she realized like what she'd signed me up for and she said like oh I'm so sorry you never have to go to something like that again oh man so Mm. that is like the bible Mm-hmm. um they taught something from the bible i'm sure i i really don't remember anything yeah. but to me it was just completely like irrelevant in anything mm-hmm. not even i don't probably a slightly negative connotation cuz it's like oh we don't need that or we don't like right. that's not for that doesn't like help us in our life at all um, right but more just like irrelevant
2: yeah and that was even the same thing through like teenage years and stuff too um, yeah, definitely. Um,
1: yeah, that was so my first interaction I went and in uh, involved in Young Life, which is kind of like a youth group. So um, hearing a Jesus story for the first time at like a local youth night was like, the speaker, um, the leader told, like a, a personal story and then a Jesus story.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't even know if I like clicked in. I guess I clicked in. It was like from the Bible because he probably said it. But it was like, oh, that actually came to life. That seemed like you spoke about this Jesus story. Like maybe it was um, Jesus healing a paralyzed man and about his friends lowering him through the roof and him just like animating that to life. Like mm-hmm. people had these struggles like, okay, those are relatable things to me. Yeah. Um, And I don't think much changed after that, but hearing the gospel later in high school, um, for me, the thing that brought me to Jesus was like hearing that Jesus built us to be in relationship with him. Mm -hmm. So I really had great uh, leaders or Christian leaders around me who helped me process kind of verbally and they would use the Bible as their kind of guide. But that's, I heard the answers from their mouth, not like, oh, go read the Bible. Mm. So when I came to like be fully committed, um, I mean, er, not, I mean, early on, I was like, okay, hey, I'm I'm positively, I'm going to make this decision. Right. Or I, I want to be involved in this Jesus thing, this God thing, whatever this is. Um, on the beginning of that, that was more because of the people um, that I really met. I remember like sitting at camp one year Uh, when I was like in grade 12, and I saw a Bible sitting on a table. And then I saw one of these leaders sitting and it was like her Bible, I guess she went to a Bible study before breakfast, but I wasn't invited to it, which I was like, actually disappointed because I was (laughs) having so much fun at camp. I was like, wait, you guys did something without me? Like, I want to do everything here. Right. Um, But they're like, Oh, okay, well, maybe you can come join us. We do this back home. I was like, Okay, sounds great. Like, yeah, <laughs> Bible study is like I, I don't care what it is. I just want to be involved and having a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that was kind of my heart. And I thought I remember looking and I said, if this leader, and I like looked at the leader believes what that says, and I looked at the Bible, and I just thought, then I'm in. So it was really like a testament mm-hmm. to these leaders being incarn- incarnational to me.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. um,
1: really- so that was kind of my belief. What happened then, and then after I kind of dug backwards and thought okay what does this thing actually say but i always from that moment on i had a kind of more presupposition that i've seen the truth of this thing already now Mm -hmm. let me dive in and really see why is it true and how is it true in that deeper level so then it became kind of a uh, switch turned at
2: that point when i kind of accepted jesus right Yes. that's cool man yeah interesting Mm -hmm. i think for me andrew probably similar story like uh, like I grew up around the Bible and the Bible stories and things like that. And they were very present in, in my house. Um, my parents really brought in like, you know, especially like the Easter stories and Christmas and all those kinds of things that really start to come alive. But then you just kind of got used to hearing a lot of those stories. Um, so yeah, I think like I, I always kind of grew up going, yeah, the Bible's a, it's a thing. It's, you know, something that I believe is true and not really ever thinking too much about that of just kind of like, Oh, it's just, it's the Bible. Yeah. It is what it is. Um, but yeah. So, I mean like that's got pros and cons to it, I guess. But it was interesting. Like I was thinking about that idea and I've thought about this before. And then even Andrew, as you were kind of saying, like the Bible sort of became something that was almost redundant of like, yeah, I kind of know it's a thing and I know it's there. Um, But I I heard a prof once say he brought up this idea of how much he thinks um, cute Bible stories and like flannel graphs and whatever, veggie tales and, you know, the um, kidification of all the Bible stories have actually done a really big disservice to our overall view of scripture and those stories. Um, Meaning like when you take a story like David and Goliath and you sanitize it and make it really kid friendly when you're now 25 and reading David and Goliath, all you can think of is the kid version.
3: Right.
2: Um, I don't know. What do you guys think of that idea? Do you think there's like that that's true? Do you think that kind of like taints the way you can see scripture a little bit, because all you can think of is like the veggie tale version
0: of whatever
2: Jonah or something like that. <laughs>
0: I, yeah, no, that's such a good point. I, it's, and it's kind of challenging to grapple with. I, I see two sides of it. Yeah. And I think of, let's say the Joseph story, Mm -hmm. Uh, he was dealing with life and death often, like when he was thrown into the well, when he was in prison. And in the animated movie, uh, it's animated, first of all, so it doesn't feel like it's death. It doesn't feel like that's something that could even be a potential. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it does make it, it is more sanitized, on the flip side, I look at children's ministry as a whole, like Sunday school. Yeah. And I think, well, how, how else do we effectively share Bible stories with children if right. we don't sanitize them? And so I, I agree, I, I yeah. agree with, what your prof, with what your professor said in the sense that we might actually deal with that later on. We might struggle with reading these stories without thinking of the animated version. But at the same time, if we don't give those animated versions like veggie tales, and if we don't do our Sunday school stories so that the kids can listen to them, then they're not hearing the Bible. And it won't actually, I guess I would say I'd rather have somebody have an animated story stick with them than no story at all.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Totally. I think, yeah, I think there's definitely a challenge in there of like, how do you still teach them the Bible? Mm -hmm. Because you obviously want to, and that's obviously what scripture commands us to do um
0: yeah it's a great, it's I, a have
2: great a, I have right. a thought but zach i'm curious what you think because you yeah. didn't grow up with them yeah. totally
1: i've been different for you one thought which i think we'll talk to a big late uh, to like talk about later is what uh, pers- uh what perception does that give about christianity and the bible so yeah. there's christian kind of from a skeptic or secular point of view just a generic um from our cultural moment, how do they view Christianity? Okay, what do they have to look on Christianity? What's kind of the most prominent? That might be one thing. I Mm -hmm. think we'll talk about that later. But for me personally, um I didn't I didn't grow up reading those stories. Um so I didn't have any presupposition or I didn't have this kind of looming um thing in my background to read it. So when I read it it was more Uh, Probably my, like, leaders telling me these stories with a lot. Like, I can picture my leaders, like, I actually have, like, quite a few of, like, from the gospel, I can picture a leader who's, like, digging out the roof of a hut and lowering a friend in. And, like, how that thing is so crowded. Like, that's actually, um, but they're great storytellers. And I can, Mm. and that picture of my, you know, this kind of mid – Middle East hut or house uh, and there was straw and there's kind of like you could actually tear it apart. People are, or um, Peter walking over the boat, you know, him taking that first step over the boat and like, is this water like going to support me? And then he's like, how is he walking through waves? Is he like gliding around? Or is he like jumping up and down? Like, yeah, I can picture the leaders doing that. Um, Hmm. So that's my kind of Hmm. backdrop. But I've also been able to move past that, like,
3: yeah,
1: I remember reading the story of Samson for the first time, yeah, um and this was probably one of the biggest, like I just really dove into the Bible, read it, and I was like looking at all these details, like he was tying foxes' tails together, like what the frick, like fifty foxes, like what is this guy, a champ, and I would just every detail and that would paint a picture in my head, mm. and and I remember. I, the next time, like a couple weeks later, I was, we were doing this like Bible study. I was like a young adult at that time. So there's a bunch of like youth kids that I was a leader now. And we, for some reason, I can't remember, we just needed, we're all together and we're like, oh, we don't have any material for a Bible study. And I was like, okay, well, let's read this story. And I just, we spent like an hour and I, I would read the story. I would tell about it. I would tell my thoughts. We'd talk about it. And And it was just so entertaining to me, like, this Mm -hmm. Old Testament. Like, that's when I really fell in love with the Old Testament. I was like, Mm -hmm. is anyone reading this crap? Like, this is amazing. (laughs) It's not crap, but, like, this stuff. (laughs) Um, I was trying to relate to youths. Um, So what my point is there is I don't know if I was able to get such a vibrant picture of the stories in the Bible or the things that the Bible is telling us because I didn't have maybe a presupposition or or a backdrop, whatever you want to call it. Mm. But maybe like, maybe my pushback would be like, well, are you actually sitting and reading the Bible and just letting it soak over you enough that you Mm. can still have like Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, But you also say, Oh, I, I, I know that's there, but I've read the Bible for myself. And this was a personal experience where I saw Jesus and in from like revelation with the sword out of his mouth, but I saw him like flip over tables and I saw him like care for someone and just sit with Martha and Mary. Mm -hmm. I saw him weep over Lazarus. Like I've read that and the Holy Spirit has spoken to me and given me a new, and that's actually my new story. I know this is true, but this is my new story. So maybe like my pushback be like, oh, well, are you actually reading the Bible? Are you letting it like be a part of you? Totally. Um, to supersede this pre-, pre
2: notion that you have kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Do you think like uh actually no, never mind. That's good. Yeah, cuz for me I think I think of the way um like I'm reading the Lord of the Rings book right now like really really slowly. Right. Um just a little bit here and there, but I'm reading the first one. I read the Hobbit and I'm reading the first Lord of the Rings book. And I found as I read those books, because I've seen all the movies, all I can see when I think of Frodo right, right. is the movie character. Right. So as I'm reading even new adventures in the book, all I can see are those characters. Roger even Woods. The, even though, yeah, even though the descriptions of those characters in the book actually might be different. Right. It doesn't matter. All I can see is like the, the one that was portrayed by whatever Peter Jackson, is that right. the yeah. actor was, right? Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, I don't know. Just like that kind of comes in, I think, as we read the Bible and it's like, oh man, the only thing I can see is certain pictures. And so right. do you still, are you still able to to grasp the gravity of a story and mm-hmm. how crazy something really is? But have mm-hmm. you read, uh,
1: I think that's a good example. Like have there been parts where you've read Lord of the Rings where like, hey, this was in the movie. And like, wow, this actually brings new depth to this scene in the movie. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Right? Yeah, that, That's what I hear from people, right?
2: But but the so here's the thing though is that when you start to read all those sections that weren't in the movie, those are the best sections of the book to read,
0: right? Because you get to build it in your own mind how it looks. Now your
2: imagination's engaged,
0: right? And you actually
2: get to really dive into something where you're like, oh, I I have to really work my mind to picture what this was like, and you see a new aspect of a story, and you're like, wow, this is actually incredible. I don't know. It just makes me think of the way we read scripture like that too. Of That's like read the narratives and go, oh man, I really got to engage my imagination in what's going on. Or is it just like, no, I see cartoon David right. winging around his little sling. And
0: yeah. then on the flip, on the flip side of the cartoons, you have the the live action reenactments, let's mm-hmm. say the passion of the Christ, right? Which which for me just fuels and enlivens the Gospel narrative, like right. when I read about Jesus being crucified on the cross, I think of those brutal scenes that Mel Gibson portrayed in that that movie, right. and it helps me connect with with what's going on a bit more mm-hmm. because I do have that that experience with the imagery, and there there's this there's this balance I find. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, for sure, some of it can be helpful. Zach, are you going to say something?
1: Well, and just the other part to me is, I when I was, you know, the I, I really learned a lot of stories from teaching Sunday school. That was the first thing I did. I taught Sunday right. school, yeah. And I would love the Prince of Egypt. Like I remember watching that, and like, oh, this movie's so great. Like the Prince of Egypt, um, like making my youth kids watch it. Like, hey, let's watch this movie. It's so awesome. Like it really helps. Like maybe this Bible seems boring to you. But yeah. watch this cartoon. Wasn't that entertaining? Like, this is yeah. actually from the Bible. Like, right. now let's read the Bible. Yeah. Oh, okay, that, that kind of helps you. It's a tool. Um, yeah. And the Bible, um, it was like a a real action um, series that came out a few mm-hmm. years ago. Um, I think it was just called the Bible. And yeah. they had, like, the Son of God. Like, I loved when those came out, too, because it would just... Help fill in some of the details, the blanks, and then you could go back read the Bible. That's what I wanted to do after. It's like, wait, you just showed like that thing like do this crazy thing. Yeah, where is that? Like, give me that verse. Let me read it for myself. So
2: yeah, for sure. Yeah, Yeah. and I think in that way they do become helpful. It's like what you're saying, Andrew. It's like you read or you um, watch like the Passion or something, and it's like, oh, that helps you kind of and a little bit more reverence for the story and for mm. what actually happened and what jesus actually went through and stuff even though it's like you watch it and a bunch of people are like oh that's way too intense it's like yeah no it was actually just intense so
0: it's okay right um and then you have uh then you have that movie i didn't see it but on the the childhood of jesus uh, oh, oh <laughs> yeah the one
2: that, that was the spoof one or whatever
0: no, no. I think they came across as being like super legit. And oh. um, apparently they, apparently they knew what Jesus' childhood was like. So oh, cool. yeah, oh. yeah. I, I find some of that
2: helpful. Actually, some of it's kind it of like, be. like I'm, I'm
0: actually genuinely curious. I, I should, I should watch it.
2: Or there's another one that came out and I forget what it was called. Um, but it explored like the story of like Paul being in prison and stuff like that, where mm-hmm. it's like, we know very little about it and it just took a lot of creative license as far as like, this is maybe what was going on and what the disciples were going through yeah. and Luke and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And even though you can't read, or watch it and go, this is ha- what happened. It's like, but it's a, for me, it was almost a helpful thought experiment of like, Oh, right. There was so much else going on mm. at the time that Paul was in prison and writing this letter. Mm-hmm. It, it's like, right. I got to think outside of this sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. But okay, so one of the other things, maybe Zach, this goes to what you were already touching on too, is with the, you know, the Bible stories and the perceptions of Christianity that people have, um, like maybe another question for us to, to go off of with that um, is like, what is it for us that's been our biggest struggle that we've had with scripture? Um, whether it's like understanding it, believing it, whatever it is, is it maybe like at times it was too simplistic or it's like, man, this is boring? Um, because now that I'm actually thinking about this question, I think that was what it was for me sometimes. And this plays into what I was talking about with the uh, getting out with these question about Bible stories and stuff. Because you get so used to a bunch of the stories, you miss all the details. And so I got bored with a ton of it. And then I went to Bible college and had professors that started opening it all up. And I was like, oh man, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really simplistically, it's like, Adam and Eve and like eating the fruit in the garden it's like okay what fruit was it mm-hmm. okay well everyone's gonna say it's an apple it never says it was an apple and there's actually a history behind why it became an apple because there was like this erotic sense of it in the culture and blah 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 it was this weird thing but it was just little things like that where the bible started to open up right that was helpful for me but that was one of my struggles with it was like man these stories get kind of boring because you've heard them since you were like four Um, anyway so that's like one of the things for me but like what about for you guys what is one of the biggest struggles you've had with scripture as you've come to understand it and learn it and having to wrestle with believing it
1: um for me one of the biggest things was kind of the old testament um ethical or moral um acts that you saw you know god um kind of deeming as either professing as this is what's happening or deeming okay um so that would be some of the what the wars or the genocides that happened in the mm-hmm. old testament and then again with some of the maybe slavery laws that were professed
2: um or talked about yep yeah for sure i mean another one you could throw in there's like the polygamy stuff too right like people with yeah. multiple wives and concubines and stuff like that and you're like this doesn't seem right right yeah Okay. Yeah, that's definitely one. Um, Okay, let's come back to that in a sec. Andrew, what about you, man?
0: Um, I'd say two. One of them was, I really struggled when I first started getting into the word and even still today, uh, is just understanding it. So just general comprehension, uh, especially when you're in the Old Testament. But when you're in the New Testament too, I think for anybody that's freshly uh, opening up the Bible, it's hard to comprehend and understand this narrative and what is being said. All the laws in the Old Testament. So that was a big thing I had to grapple with and overcoming that barrier. And then uh, on the flip side too, there and and more so lately than earlier on, I have found it's a bit of a struggle just in terms of contradiction that seems like there's certain areas where, okay, well, this is said here, whereas this is said and it seems like it's a total contradiction between two different authors. And so that was something that I did grapple with for a while as well.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think that's fairly common. We should come back to that as well as like the idea of our other contradictions and you know as we read things at face value it looks like it's saying one thing here and it says another thing here and so if we take it as one unified piece of work then okay how can it be saying more than one thing at more than one time especially between like the old testament and the new testament like you mentioned the laws where it's like well, there's a law here that says you're not supposed to eat pork but then okay we all eat pork so (laughs) what do we do with that now yeah Yeah, okay, Zach, let's actually let's come back to yours. Um, like the whole idea of like the ethical issues in the Old Testament, whether that's um genocide or you know, murder or those kinds of things, like what do we do with that? Um right. what how have you wrestled with that? And then what are some of the I don't know, I'm not sure if we have many of the answers for this, but you know, just from our experience, what what do we actually do with that? Because no doubt that's not it's not something that, you know, we're the only ones that have talked about it. It's uh it's a struggle. A lot of people have.
1: Totally. Yeah. I mean, so many things to talk about, but to kind of frame it, frame it, the one issue that might come into play is the problem of evil and suffering. Mm -hmm. Uh, Either God's uh, not all powerful or God's not all um, good. Yeah. Um, So why is there suffering in the world? Mm -hmm. Um, And we can see that, Free will is a big part of that. Um, there's lots of answers and there's also, I think, Nate, you actually said this best. There's no actual ultimately satisfying answer to that question. Right. Remember we've talked about that before. Um,
3: yeah.
1: So, um, But one major thing is that we have free will, that God loves us, so he allows us to make decisions. And right. w- thus, we made a decision to disobey God and live our own life. That mm-hmm. creates us uh, to live in a fallen world. And I mm-hmm. think that's the backdrop of Genesis when you look at a lot of that or maybe the Pentateuch, um, which a lot of that happens where God's there's wars that are happening that say, you no, know, God's going to kind of supernaturally intervene and create this type of destruction,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, which is a different category. That's why I wanted to categorize it in what mm-hmm. are we actually talking about? Um, yeah. To me, it's when God's like, Hey, walk around Jericho five times, and then, or not more than five mm-hmm. times, walk around Jericho, and then I'll destroy the city. It's like, Okay, hey, that's God doing that. Like, that's mm-hmm. not um, a free will choice. But if we talk about um, David um, sending, um, what's the guy's name? Bathsheba's husband. What's his name? Uh, she husband? I don't know. I'm blanking. Isn't the guy he killed?
3: Yeah.
1: yeah, There we go. Some Bible trivia. There we go. Yeah. We're doing it. There we you go. Guys. Master's degrees. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, he sends him on the front lines and steals his husband. Okay, like, hey, that's not like you can take that. Did God want that happens? Like, no. Did he make it happen? No. He actually like told David not to do that, but that was his choice, right. his free will to do that. So we're talking about like two different things okay. here. Um, so when it's the mass genocide uh, like the flood too is mm-hmm. is obviously the biggest example that's like okay yeah, sure let's just take that one everyone um so the first aspect is looking at what is the writing that's going on in this um we look at the book of genesis what is the book of genesis trying to say mm-hmm. um what it type of writing and we can talk about that forever, but mm. regardless, the theme of genesis re- regardless of how you take it, is that man is evil and um, that they disobeyed God, and right. that God had a story for ultimate redemption, mm-hmm. so um looking at that as a purpose of seeing that there's ultimate good behind it or ultimate love or ultimate power, um, right. and when you go and read it like. You see the good in it, um but a lot of times when um atheists take it, I just think of like Dawkins or hitchens like they're they're taking out this okay, this morally horrible creature,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um not creature being yeah. um, and they take that one example, it's like, well, yeah, but if you read the whole thing in context, like you see that there's two sides of the story, mm-hmm. um yeah, they killed a bunch of like horrible lawless unmoral creatures that's what this being did does mm-hmm. that make it um uh, but you just saying ultimate genocide is um like that is a horrible thing too but it's like but if it's actually saving the human race we <laughs> right. actually see that all the time like that's literally the story mm-hmm. of uh, avengers Is Thanos says it to save our population, we need to take out half of 50% of everyone, and then our all of our races will continue. And the amazing moral Avengers say, That's horrible. We can't do that. It's like, okay, well, what is the ultimate purpose like of this thing? Is it to save one person or to have I mean you just have to ask yourself. Right. It, It makes sense in your worldview, but maybe we have to change your worldview. Yeah.
2: Well, I think, I think that's actually a really good point. Like what you just said at the end there is like, what is your worldview as you read scripture? Right. Because if you're, if what, so what you're saying is like, do you have that background to think of, to think of the fact that it's like, yes, humanity rebelled against God. And so we're constantly in that position of like being deserving of his wrath. Okay. So it's like, that's the starting place. So it's like, there's no reason that God shouldn't just wipe everybody out already. Um, We're already (laughs) in that place of just like, we should probably just, I'll be wiped out. I mean, there should have been tons of stories of that and, um, right. But, it, but when you have a worldview that says, no, we're good and we're deserving of good things and blessings and all that kind of stuff. then mm-hmm. well then, yeah, it does seem weird when God does anything disciplinary, but also something that seems a little bit more ethically questionable. <laughs> but I mean, when that's your worldview, then that obviously is going to be a bigger struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I think even when you look at the, the judgments of God, like we were just doing, um, like our justice Bible reading, which is all the prophetic stuff. And one of the things is just noticing in there is like, okay, yeah, God continually judged even his own people, Israel, and and allowed them to be destroyed. Oh, like over and over and over and over. But it was never final. He always reserved uh, like what, you know, the remnant or whatever. right? Right. So it's like, yeah, he was disciplining. He was allowing bad things to happen or whatever it is, but it was never final. Like for the people of Israel, it's like God was actually still very merciful because he could have just ended everything but it's like out of his mercy he chose not to Mm -hmm. Um, well that's
1: the bit uh yeah i think that's awesome like the bigger picture is letting someone die well it's like god doesn't want anyone to die right but why does it matter if it's you know 30 years or 60 years
3: Mm.
1: now that's like well god has a bigger plan he actually hate 60 years he, cuz he has a eternity in mind. Right. So 60 to 30 is insignificant for what we're talking about if there's yeah. a greater life that's on the top. Everyone dies. So yeah. why does it matter if well you don't have the right to kill that person. And it's like, well yeah, but so you don't have the right to take this time away from that person. That's what you're saying. Right. Uh, because we're not talking about death here cuz they're going to die eventually anyways. So we're talking about time um, and we're talking about control. Um, right. And yeah. if we talk about time and control, well, that's, yeah, that's exactly what God wants to to take. He wants to have complete, you know, we were just talking earlier in round table about the servanthood of Christ, you know, to give up your life is to gain your life. Well, he right. literally wants you to give up your whole life. So uh, And that perspective is like, yes, that's 100% what we're talking about is complete genocide of your life, everyone. (laughs) Genocide of all lives that
2: don't follow Jesus. Right. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting way to put that. I feel like that's a a great little soundbite. Take that one out of this. Um, Yeah, I think that's good, man. And I think, yeah, a lot of it is just the worldview you're coming in with. How are you actually viewing it? And I think as you read those stories through the right lens – they do start to make sense and there's a lot more to it than we just talked about too. So like to any of that the genesis uh you know the genocide mass kind of distraction sort of things i think we're only still just scratching the surface on that mm-hmm. uh, but i think it's good to do that and just also to acknowledge the fact that it's like we wrestle with that it's like all three of us can probably say it's like we've wrestled with the idea that god allowed really bad or he even made it happened of like mass genocide or called for it or destruction or whatever it is. And it's like, yeah, we all sit there and go, yeah, that's kind of weird. And uh, it doesn't sit real well with me, but I have to then understand that it's, it can't be based on my presuppositions or my worldview. I have to rearrange it to go, okay, but who is God? And how does this actually fit within the bigger part of, or bigger narrative of things and all that kind of stuff. Right. Andrew, anything to add to that point?
0: Yeah, I was just saying, like it's uh, almost scandalizing, like some of the stuff that is said. It seems like mm. in Isaiah, how it said it was the will of the Lord to crush and prophesy mm. His own Son. Right. And you read that, and you're like, what the heck? Like He was <laughs> will to kill His own Son, and he, His Son hasn't even come yet. Right. But when you look at the Gospels; we know it, Jesus was crucified, mm. and a lot of if you just look at it in those kind of terms, like a lot of the Bible doesn't make sense. Like it's, how is this even a thing? And I think one of the reasons the Bible gripped my life is because of those revelations of being like, this is borderline, like just bad, like the ethical, uh, issues, dilemmas that's, that can be arisen through, some of the scripture, like it doesn't actually compute like in my safe Western kind of civilization. Right. And that's, to me, that was a big thing is like trying to understand and grapple with some of those texts. And in terms of the old Testament, I think uh, a huge hinge point for its legitimacy is in the gospels itself is on Jesus because you think about all the prophecies that were foretold that were, uh, going to be completed in Jesus I think there's almost 50 of them
3: mm-hmm. and
0: so when you look at that hundreds of years prior to his own birth there are all these different words from different authors in different time periods saying there's going to be a son of God there's he's going to be um, the savior of the world it's will the Lord to crush him and Jesus comes he fulfills I think it was 44 of those prophecies and that's hundreds of years later mm-hmm. and that was a big Um, reason as to why i grew in my confidence in old testament as being scripture and being inerrant and the word of god simply because of seeing the entire narrative portrayed over hundreds thousands of years even um it's just you you can't make it's just beautiful like you can't make that up yeah
2: for sure well and i think that's i think what you're saying is is really important and from what I've seen other writers and people do like Tim Keller and all that kind of stuff. You're right. I think the hinge piece according to them and a lot of other people is, is Jesus and the gospels. Like that's the hinge piece. And that's kind of the point where you really have to wrestle with that before you can go to everything else where it's like, okay, if I'm going to understand the old Testament properly, I need to understand Jesus in the context of the gospels first Um, because he references, he, but he, yeah, he fulfills, but he also references the old Testament. So it's like, okay, let's sit with the gospels for a bit. Are they true? Is that really what happened? Is Jesus really who he said he was? Mm -hmm. And then if so, then what he says about the Old Testament and the way he treats it um, is then an indication of how we then should look at it and treat it. Mm -hmm. Like you're saying, that was the validation for you for how you then understood the Old Testament and why it was actually something Mm -hmm. you should pay attention to. Um, but I think one of the things within this and Tim Keller brings this up a bunch. Um, And you were actually already touching on this, Andrew, is that idea of like the distance we have from the Bible is one of the things that makes it challenging. And I think that's why Jesus becomes that stepping stone a little bit too to the Old Testament. It's like, okay, so he's helping us bridge the gap of thousands of years, in essence, or hundreds of years between us and the Old Testament. But then it's like, okay, now, but us looking at Jesus, we still have to bridge that gap and try to understand what's going on there. Um, but I think that's a legitimate challenge is the distance we have from the text and from the Bible as a culture in general is a really big challenge for us and for everybody. Um, And it's one of those things. um, Tim Keller writes the objection as uh, this, he says, uh, we can't trust the Bible culturally um, as an, that's an objection people have meaning I read things like genocide or slavery or those kinds of things. And it's like, Oh yeah, no, I just can't get around that that's how can it be talking about those kinds of things? Mm. Um, but then they talk about like, but, and this is what we're saying. It's like, well, if you actually just slow down for a minute and read those things properly and read those texts in context, it might not be saying what you think it's saying. It like, um, for instance, like slavery, right? It's like, okay, so we all know the modern definition of slavery, which is horrific and awful, but it's like, But what, when Ephesians 6, 5 talks about slaves obeying their masters, what kind of slavery is it talking about? Right. Um, right. Right. Like, I don't know. One of you guys want to explain like, what is, what was slavery back then or like either in the first century or even in old Testament, but let's go first century. Like what's the concept of slavery going on there?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I always explain like this: like they didn't have, um, any banks or anything. So one area of slavery is like, if you owed someone money, then right. you would have to be enslaved to them. So right. when you talk about it, it's like, well, we have debt now. Like I have $26,000 in student loans. I'll say right. that. And like, so I have to make these payments to the government yeah. um, every single month. Mm. And that's our agreed upon wage. I'm enslaved. Mm. You know what happens? They can send it to collections and then I go jail. Um, you know, if these things escalate, this right. is agreed upon well, how do I pay off money if I don't have money? Like, well, you figure it out or go get a job. Well, jail actually costs money. We live in a government that has the ability to sustain us. And sometimes when we think about like this, we realize how lucky we are that they can tap, uh, pass a X billion dollar bill to help us during this COVID time that we're in and that our lives are still going to stay amazing. Well, it's like, in a culture that doesn't have a government like that, how do you change payment or help people? Like you don't have jail. Okay. Well, pay off. Okay. Well now you're enslaved to that person. You owe them something. So now you have to work for them. Yeah. Um, So that was one area that slavery would come up.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, that's a huge part of it. Andrew, anything, anything from your side or anything to add to that?
0: Not specifically on slavery.
2: Okay. I think, uh, yeah. Like I think Zach, exactly what you're saying is right. And I think there's a lot more to that even it's like, okay, yeah, you became enslaved to that person, but then you weren't that much different than a free person. It's like, you still were your own person. You could still earn money. You still lived uh, relatively well compared to everybody else around you. It's like, it's not like you were forced into like awful conditions and labor and stuff like that all the time. And it's like, you weren't even a person, whatever. It's like, no, they could own land. They could own property. They could, earn enough money to buy themselves out of slavery like it was actually not that bad and it's not the modern definition of slavery and so with some of these kinds of things where it's like well that doesn't sit well for me it's like well yeah because there's such a big distance uh from us to the text we have to understand it properly and i think that's one of the things the, the biggest challenges people have with the bible and we like you know all three of us have with the bible as we read it and wrestle with it it's like oh right this isn't in our context they use language different they had different traditions and right. um, i think
1: and, yeah and going on that if i think if we read it actually in the context like this might not be exact exegetical line but let's say your employee your slave owed money and laws like on the seventh year you let them off or mm. you let them free You know, there's laws that say that. Okay, well, when people work for businesses, let's say there's a Christian business owner and you look at their life totality and their home and their employment, like, are you giving them bonuses? Are you paying off their debt? Are you giving them more than they deserve? Like if we actually started to, you know, exegete this and apply it to actual modern day context, I don't think those same objections would come true. Now people would say, well that's too far the other way. And it's like, well, yeah, that's the extremeness, the love that God is actually commanding his followers to do. Those were the laws he was putting in place. Right. Uh, Yeah. I know that's not true for all the laws, but I'm like, we, you would see that in some, um, you know, just contextualness of some laws where it's like, you know, this was actually a little bit extreme the other way. You're, you're not so high and mighty on your moral tower. Like, when right. was the last time you've given more than you need to, to somebody? Right. Yeah. But it's
2: being able to actually, yeah, you kind of have to put away your cultural lens a little bit though, to get past the initial, like, uh, I don't like it right. to get past that, to go, okay, what is this actually saying? Oh, well, there's actually so much meaning here that we could that apply. And this really should change the way that we live. Right. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a, a, a challenge. Um, okay. Another one of these challenges um, or objections or whatever it is. Andrew, you brought this up already, uh, was the idea of contradictions. Uh, are there mistakes or are there contradictions within scripture? Because um, obviously if there are, that kind of undermines its uh, authoritativeness or, you know, it's like if there's one lie in the Bible, okay, that kind of messes it up for the rest of the Bible, right? Right. So this is a big deal. Um, so, I mean, Andrew, I mean, like you, you brought this up as like one of your own struggles, but like Know, explain it a little bit it's like okay what if you can find one of these or think of one of the contradictions or mm. you know, kind of explain what's going on there and why it might be challenging
0: yeah and I, I think this actually uh, applies to what we were just talking about which is kind of being at such a distance and not having context mm. and cultural understanding is another reason why it can appear that there are contradictions Um, I found that in the contradictions that I had it's it's when I actually kind of began to understand the cultural context or the uh, the churches that were actually being written to what was going on in their cities and there was a lot of clarity that was brought to me by doing that kind of research Mm -hmm. so um, one one somewhat recent example I can think of is the way that Paul and James talk about grace. So James talks about grace. Uh, He says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And that's in James. And then you go to Romans and Paul says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so there's this glaring contradiction at face value. And it's like, okay, what what is actually going on here james is saying that you only have faith there's only grace by works and then uh paul is saying that there's no works to be done when it comes to grace you're just saved through faith and so that was a grapple with me that's just uh i would say one example of many that i'm sure you two know of as well uh that seemed to contradict and so i had to kind of grapple with that and um yeah. Uh, he says later, James, uh, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Mm-hmm. And I came to the conclusion just through different commentaries and getting more cultural context that they were speaking to different uh, uh, different audiences and they needed to hear certain words. And so James is talking more about uh, faith that actually produces loving behavior. And The reality is that we don't have faith if there isn't any kind of fruit that comes from it. Because if we have a genuine faith, then there's going to be works that just come out from a loving behavior as a result of what we have received, the gift of salvation in Christ. And so through actual study of the context and even the original language, you can see that there appears to be a glaring contradiction but there actually isn't They're right. They're speaking to different audiences, right. but they still have the same message. Yeah. And so that was one example for me of a contradiction that I had to really struggle with and right. how I kind of came to a conclusion of, yeah, I think this is what it's being, what's being said. Yeah, for sure.
2: No, that's good, man. I think that just, yeah, it's right. It, it's what you're saying is like, it goes to show that, you know, if we do the study, if we try to understand the culture, the, the historical context, the cultural context, then, you know, a lot of it starts to make a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. What about like, uh, there's another one that gets quoted every now and then or quite often is um, the description of Judas's death. Are you guys familiar with this very much?
0: Um, yeah. Is it one, one of them he's hung and then the other he's eaten
2: or, or something? Uh, yeah. So the two passages are Matthew 27, where it says that he went and hanged himself. Uh, and then acts one eighteen says that he uh, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. There we go. yeah, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> real pleasant picture there. yeah um, and so people will quote this one like and they'll say, like, okay, so which is it? Did he hang himself, or did he like fall does you know, his whole midsection pour out and stuff like that? Um, but then, you know, it's like it's one of the it's it's something like this where it's like, okay, well, what if these aren't? two contradictory explanations right. they're actually two explanations of the same thing right. and the matthew 27 one is true judas went and hanged himself and then maybe it's just acts one eighteen, and this is a very legitimate scholarly way to look at this um is that yes he was ha- he did hang himself but then at some point uh someone had to go cut him down, down right and then when his body hit essentially falls right. hits the ground. And then, you know, his bowels gushed out everywhere and stuff like that. So it's like providing further explanation to it. And it's like, that's not weird at all. It's like, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, Pulling this from Mark Clark's book, actually. Um, Problem of God, a little plug. Um, But so there's like lots of those kinds of things going on where it's like these these contradictions, are they they mistakes? And how do we wrestle with the different kinds of teachings and different accounts and different stories? And it's like, well, they just they wrote different. Um, right. They weren't trying to grasp anything. Zach, can you think of any other contradictions? I'm trying to think of other ones on the top of my head, but.
1: Um, well, the discrepancies between the gospels um, and the. Uh, right. Yeah. Like okay.
2: That's actually good too.
1: Synoptic gospels or the different ones of telling the same story, but having different slightly details. Um, yeah. Part of it. Right. Um, there's lots of generic ones that you can kind of, or generic advice, you know, if you have two people at a scene of a crime and you ask them what happened it's like it's going to be different
3: yeah for um, sure
1: um there's going to be there's details that are um not necessarily wrong but like reversed order um and that's fine mm-hmm. and then looking at this all the knowing like the gospels weren't just necessarily um fact for fact like scientific books they were telling a story about jesus and the gospel the Mm -hmm. winning story the triumph story of jesus who he is Mm -hmm. um portraying a message about that Mm -hmm. using um accounts yeah so a lot of order is mixed up in the different gospels that's intentional it's not to say um something like this happened then this happened then this happened they're not trying to do that they weren't trying to they don't they didn't write gospels like that so yeah um, understanding that type of writing as
2: well yeah i think that's huge so maybe actually let's just take that and go off of like you know we mentioned this before of the centrality of jesus and the gospels and even just if you do any reading into apologetics type stuff like i said that's where people tend to start people like tim keller that's where they'll start as saying well you got to get that right you got to understand Jesus and the gospels. So um, if we're just going to stick there for a minute, um, why, why can we trust the gospels? Uh, What makes them reliable, whether that's historically or whatever it is, why can we actually believe what they say um, that, that, jesus actually is who is portrayed in that that those events actually happened that those witness accounts were real and all that kind of stuff um so i mean you know there's a bunch of things we could say here so we can throw out a few um yeah so feel free to start with something what's some of the reason we can actually believe the gospels
0: well i guess one reason would be uh that they were quite early sources right after christ's death um so most of them were written between 60 to 80 AD Um, and then some would say that Mark wrote his gospel uh, I think it was between 30 to 40 AD so that's quite soon after Christ's death and there would be a lot of people that were alive then that could attest to that and I think historically like historians that's a big reason for them to believe any kind of document it's the eyewitness accounts it's um, the fact that these writers could claim that these events were truthful and that the people that were actually walking living breathing in those days that had witnessed those other events Mm -hmm. they actually came alongside and then we even see the story of the whole early church uh, and that spark that that revival there. Like that wouldn't have happened unless there was a genuineness to what was being taught, what was being recorded. Mm-hmm. So I'd yeah. say right around that area, that, that time period, um, there was a lot of legitimacy and that was simply proven by the fact that the early church just exploded and that the people that were genuine eyewitnesses could attest to what did happen.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think and yeah, Tim Keller points that being one of the reasons that we can see the gospel or we can believe the gospels as historically reliable and not legends or myths as some people say they are is because according to him he says the timing is far too early for the gospels to be legends because like you're saying as they were completed as these gospels were written down hmm. people were still alive who actually saw Jesus and who saw him resurrected even and so if they were like going around and creating all these falsified accounts. There was a whole bunch of people walking around going, uh, yeah, no, I was there. That didn't happen, man. And there was hundreds of these people, right? Um, I think within that, the biblical authors use specific names of people, uh, that are like peripheral people. It's like the person who carries, um, Jesus cross, uh, in Mark fifteen twenty one. it says that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Uh, so it's like, well, there's no reason for, uh, Mark to include those names unless those were names people were actually familiar with and probably a person we could act or they could actually talk to or know or something like that. where it's like, Hey, I'm going to say Alexander and Rufus because they can attest to the fact that this is true. Mm. And so they legitimately, those people were still alive and around. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I think that that's huge. Zach. I mean, like we, we were talking about manuscripts a little bit before, but I mean, you know, tell us a little bit more about the, the manuscript side of things.
1: Yeah, so basically when you look at any ancient document um, in an academic sense, you look at the amount of manuscripts you have. These are the amount of ancient texts that you can say, we pulled this from uh, this actual physical piece, um, Mm. and this is how we get that information. Um, So this is true for all ancient documents. Um, Plato, um, so they call these copies. Um, So Plato, there's seven copies. These are kind of uh, rough you know, within 10%. So it might be six to eight uh, copies for Plato. Caesar um, is um, 20. And uh, Aristotle is about 49. When it comes to the New Testament, um, I mean, a conservative number would be about 5,000. But this number is growing every single day. And they can't even code these amount of manuscripts. Like Trinity Western does a huge amount of this. Mm -hmm. Uh personally know a guy who's doing that right now. Yeah. They can't they can't find enough people to um document and code all the manuscripts that they have in the New Testament. So when it comes from an academic standpoint, this fact alone makes the New Testament the Mm -hmm. most historically accurate document on the face of the planet that there ever was. It's Academic sense it's unprecedented how many um, how accurate this document should be. We literally you can study Aristotle, you can study Plato, you can study Caesar you get degrees on these people um, and we literally have fractions We have no idea if any of that said is true. but right. when you look at the New Testament, hmm. this is basically as factual scientific as you can get in anything if that is the precedent that were they set with other ancient documents
3: right Um, i don't think
1: anyone really talks about the standard in the academic world and that's the thing is no one really knows like unless you're a professor with a phd who's studying this stuff you don't really have on the ground data about this stuff it's all just really hearsay but when you talk about this like okay, where are we getting this information? How do we know this? Why do we know this? Well, these are the reason. These are our sources. These are actual seven copies that we have of this in the world.
3: Um,
1: I could go buy a full ancient manuscript, the New Testament. I could go get one and have it for myself. And the amount of work and resources they're doing to tweak and critique and um, change these little micro- details about the text happens all the time you know mm-hmm. yeah. I have a, copies of the ancient texts and you know the first copy the second copy this organization did one this organization did one right. I, and, and the amazing thing the reliable of all of this when you look at anything they're 99 point I don't know what point uh,
2: or something like that
1: <laughs> percent the same right we're talking about, was this supposed to be a compound word? Cause this manuscript looks like there wasn't enough mm-hmm. space between these letters or, you know, was this uh supposed to interpret it as in or on, or, you know, it's, it's those little things. And guess what? You can see all of those in your Bible. If you have footnotes in your Bible, um, right. they, they include all those disagreements, the textural variants, the, and you can say, is it this or this? And you can yeah. choose guess what you can choose whatever one you prefer and that's it doesn't really affect the main purpose of whatever that text is saying so
2: yeah for sure oh that's good man i think yeah there's the other aspect like if you if you put the number of manuscripts also with the date of the manuscripts and stuff too and when they were written then it just gets even crazier because the it was all written between kind of you know 40 50 ad and 100 ad right like the new testament was right um But the early and then the earliest copy that we have of not the entire thing, but, you know, the earliest pieces of manuscripts and things like that is from 130 A.D. So you have like such a small gap between when they were first written and a copy we actually have in our hands right now versus something like Plato, where it's like, um, I'm just trying to find this here. So this was probably written in between 427 and 347 B.C. The earliest known copy is 900 A.D. So you're what twelve, thirteen hundred years later? Is and there a known copy? Right. So when you talk to someone
1: and they have about uh, concerns about the historical accuracy of the Bible, right. you literally can't take anything past, let's say, five hundred. You, we don't know. that in history standpoint, we have no idea what happened. It mm. could have been everyone could have been a hundred foot tall monkeys with. Um, you know swords as hands and and then we don't we don't know we have no idea if if you don't take the bible as historically accurate then right. you can't say anything about history or ancient rome about this or that or that you say well it says here well then it a thousand percent says it here if you believe that in modern day history of like what happened during these um years then you have to believe this like from a, that's just from an academic standpoint, because right. what basis do you have this on? well, the general populate academic world believes it that. that's really what people are saying, but mm-hmm. that's really un, it's doesn't really have a logical stance yeah. for that viewpoint just right. makes you feel okay that's really what it's all oh, it's why people believe that
2: yeah. Yeah, I think it's also fascinating, like we're talking New Testament, but I mean, just to hit on the Old Testament for a second as well, um, you know, we, everyone talks about the Dead Sea Scrolls, which, um, which if you don't know, this was um, some, the caves of Qumran or whatever in, um Palestine I think or wherever it is exactly Uh, and they found 800 scrolls with fragments of every Old Testament book except for like one or two or something like that dating as early as 250 BC all the way up to 50 AD but the craziest one about this and I'm just looking at my notes here um, is that they found the entire a scroll of the entire book of Isaiah from 75 BC and then they compared it to uh, at this point, so this is in nineteen forty seven when they found it. they compared it to any of the or the earliest known manuscript they had at the time, which was one thousand and eight a d and found it to be ninety five percent accurate Wow so in the span of time, yeah from seventy five b c to hundred or one thousand and eight a d uh, there was five percent difference, and most of that was omissions, misspelled words, and little things like that. That's incredible so, and nuts and and the
1: and just to speak to that 95%, you compensate through that variant based on numbers. So they're able to say, well, we have these families of manuscripts. Oh, we yeah. Have these right. uh, strands of manuscripts. So when you look at not just one, that's one versus one, you got 95%. Yeah. So let's say we're working within 10%. Well, then you take a thousand manuscripts and you compare all of those. And you're able to actually clarify that 5% very easily um, to say, well, that was because this um, Pharisee, you know, was a little bit tipsy and he wrote it like this. And this one was because they wrote it with a candle and the candle spilled. And this one, you know, so you able to very easily, Take all the mar the margins out, and you yeah. very clearly have what is actually the the correct text, what was written on the day
2: yeah yeah it's it's actually it's pretty nuts, and I think that should give us a lot of confidence as believers as Christians who are studying this document too to go, hey, as far as ancient documents go, the Bible is like unheard of in the right. amount of uh, manuscripts and the dates and all that kind of stuff it's like it's more reliable and accurate than pretty much anything else there is as far as you know most people say um so i mean yeah that's a huge part of it um okay anything else to add to the uh, that aspect of things like manuscripts and things like that i think we've covered most
0: i'll of just it. say like a cool maybe this isn't directly to manuscripts but somewhat uh i was reading uh rabbi zacharias and he was just talking about how there, there are people out there that doubt some of the accuracy of the manuscripts and what's said because there haven't been proven in history uh, words that they've been talking about. So for example, in Acts 18.12, Luke uses this term called the proconsul. And it's actually to describe this gentleman named Galio. And that word never appeared in any kind of literature, classical literature. So scholars were like, okay, this can't be accurate. Luke is inaccurate. What he's saying thus is not accurate. And then as time went on, an inscription was found uh, that dated back to 51 AD. And then it used the exact same term, uh, this proconsul. And amazingly, it actually... Describe that same guy as well Galileo, and Once again, it's people are being proven even through archaeology now like hitting the manuscripts at another angle through history with archaeology uh, the text is being supported and What's actually being said in these manuscripts is being supported
3: mm-hmm. and
0: I find that to be as a believer as well a massive encouragement just to know that we have physical evidence that what they are talking about, even when people and scholars didn't believe it to be true, we ended up finding big sites that proves that what they said is actually indeed truthful. Yeah, it's interesting
2: when it starts to go that way. Like when it's like the Bible said this and it said it for a long time and then now everybody's starting to figure it out on the other side of things of like, oh, it was actually right. We have all this. Yeah, yeah,
0: it is. And there's a lot of examples of it. Um, I mean, they haven't found Noah's Ark yet, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're maybe.
2: still waiting on that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Any other like arguments you can think of? I think there's maybe a couple more. Uh, I'm just looking through notes here, but anything else that comes to mind as far as the historical reliability of the Bible or the gospels and stuff? If you're not convinced now, you're <laughs> hopeless. That was pretty good. Was, that was pretty legit yeah. uh two other really just quickly other ones that uh tim keller outlines is one the content of the gospels is far too counterproductive for them to be legends or for them to be made up um meaning like okay the crucifixion itself if you're trying to start a movement and you're fabricating stories you probably weren't going to choose that your messiah died um because that would seem yes, kind of like a hopeless direction to take that in um the other aspect of this is the depiction of the apostles is also pretty negative you know why would peter be denying jesus and getting rebuked by him and for the most part the the disciples look or yeah disciples and the apostles look pretty petty and jealous and incompetent so if you were trying to fabricate a story that probably wouldn't be the way you went with it and the other part of it is um, using women as an initial witness of the resurrection you wouldn't have made that up because at that time no one would have listened to women which is weird. Uh, But no one would have listened to the witness of a woman that would have been completely tossed out. So if they were trying to make up the story, uh, that wouldn't have been a credible way to do it. Uh, And then lastly, the literary form of the gospels is also too detailed to be legend. Uh, And I actually found this really interesting because I I don't think I actually knew this one. Um, But is that all old uh, fiction um, from back then. So if you read any fiction myths and things like that stories from hundreds and hundreds of years ago um, they were very sparse as far as details went they weren't all that district descriptive that's only been something more recently so it's like when i'm le- reading lord of the rings and it's like it was, the sentence the other day that i was just reading was like you know the rain started to fall and the the dusty pathway turned to like milk flowing down the valley or something like that where he's like describing the way that the water hit the light colored sand and turns to milk and weird things like that. Anyways, that didn't happen before. They didn't put those details in. And so what Keller is saying is that, um, that also attests to the fact that like, if this was written as a legend or a myth back then, they wouldn't have had all these details. The ones you see in like Mark four where it's like Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the stern of the boat. They wouldn't have cared. That wouldn't have been part of it. Um, And so, you know, there's a bunch of other ones like that. Um, and he says that the only explanation for why an ancient writer would mention the cushion, the 153 fish, uh, and the doodling in the dust in John eight is because details had been retained in the eyewitnesses. So
3: Mm.
2: that's just another aspect of it. Uh, So there's a lot, I mean, like, yeah, for Christians who start to doubt it, it's like, well, there's actually a lot you could look into even just for yourself to, to, um, to, to grasp it better and to have a better understanding and a better confidence in like, Hey, these documents are. Legit, it's not just something someone made up, and it's easy to feel that when you get into the culture and you watch YouTube videos and stuff. And people are like, "Here's all the bad things in the Bible, and here's all the contradictions, and here's a, why it's wrong, and all that."
0: But yeah, I like the uh, I like your last point there about the eyewitness detail. Um, it even just just makes me think like it's the way we describe stories. Like we, so we were in a Zoom meeting a few hours ago, just with all the immersed guys, and. Um, if I were to ask you just one, like what's one thing you just quickly just remember about that one hour meeting we just had. Right. What would you say? Uh,
2: Everybody messing
1: with their backgrounds. Zach. Uh, We talked about Daryl
0: Johnson's like uh, something he said. Nice. And I remember like the tiger King. Right. Because Victor had (laughs) that in his background. And it's just like, silly example, but it's just, Everybody takes different things. Everybody has different personalities. Everybody latches onto to certain details, and that adds validity. And I think that is also part of the reason why we have the Judah, Judas example. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just people can take different parts of a story, and they will hone in on those things. And that's the way they describe it. And I think it's such a legitimate reason as to why we see Uh, some details being accentuated, others being left out when you compare the different Gospels.
1: Awesome, Andrew. That's great. Yeah, I think all of, uh, we all shared some really great um, reasons, even personal reasons and reasons that we've dealt with others and heard on our personal life of like contradictions or um, issues that people have about why this is true. Because ultimately, uh, we talk about this because we want to convince everyone uh, that Jesus is true and yeah. um, we want yeah. them to come know him as their Lord and Savior. So this, mm-hmm. I think it's been really good. Thank you yeah, guys for you your guys. input.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for your time, gentlemen. Yeah.
1: I uh, yeah, hope awesome. you enjoyed this, mentors, and hope you believe the Bible to be true.
3: And if you didn't, hope you do now.
2: This has been an Extend Network production.